Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Seth, on our last podcast, we talked about the differences between business and government. I think it might be fun to talk about the differences between businesses and people. Wait, wait. Did Mitt Romney say that businesses are people? <laughs> so this could be our shortest podcast. There's nothing to discuss. Isn't he right? Well, I know you know it's more complicated than that. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a tricky subject because we know it's literally not true that a corporation is a person. But is it figuratively true or more important, legally true? And for that matter, why did we decide to try and make them people under the law in the first place? Which sparks yet another great question. Should it be legally true? Okay, Seth, well, let's start off the way we usually do and delve a little bit into history and background about why we have corporations, which, frankly, are the dominant form of businesses today. Yeah, sure. I mean, they're basically a way of allowing individuals to organize themselves into groups pursuing a common, often commercial interest. And that's valuable because it, frankly, scales better. And we have evidence that corporations existed as far back as the Roman times because they instituted something called the universitas or the collegium, or something called the corpus. In fact, the word corporation derives from the Latin word corpus, which means body or body of people, really as mostly as a way to just easily organize commercial activities. And then later in history, joint stock companies appeared in Europe as a standardized way for individuals to form these kind of organizations without requiring specific government approval. Because as I understand it, under the Roman approach, the Roman Senate actually had to approve each individual entity, which must have been really cumbersome to say the least. <laughs> For sure. And besides, that kind of approach with joint stock companies made the European pursuit of the enormous opportunities that were inherent in global expansion much easier to pursue. Sure. And the joint stock format also allowed people to buy and sell shares in these companies. So it made it a lot easier for investors to manage their own interests. The U.S. was a quick adopter of corporations after it was formed, but the forms and rules around companies continued to evolve very rapidly during the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, we should keep in mind that in the U.S., in the modern day, there are a number of different forms of corporations and business organizations. Now, we're not going to go into all the detail of them, but it's good to know that they exist. I mean, there's things called C-corporations, S-corporations, B-corporations, LLCs, <laughs> partnerships, sole proprietorships, others. And, and they really just differ in a number of aspects which are important, you know, having to do with the number of shareholders you're allowed to have, whether or not you need a board of directors who, by the way, are charged legally with managing the corporation for the benefit of the shareholders, how they're treated for tax purposes. Um, there's other business restrictions and regulations around each type. One of the more important has to do with the owner's liability, which I know we're going to spend a little more time talking about this specifically. But even given all of those alternative forms, make no mistake, any form of business organization is a legally recognized fiction. They're obviously not people for which the law was originally intended. In fact, for anyone who's applied for a business name, in most states, it's actually called a fictitious name application. That's intentional. It distinguishes the business from its non-fictional owners, the real people. Bottom line, we've created and accepted the fiction because it lets us do things we find hard to do as just individuals. That's why businesses have certain rights, such as the ability to enter into contracts, take out loans, sue people, sue other corporations, be sued, own assets, pay taxes. That's all to enable them to do things. And we're not arguing that we were wrong to create and accept this fiction. Far from it. Humanity's ability to create shared fictions is actually an amazing evolutionary trait that has allowed us to emerge as the top species as it <laughs> creates shared vehicles for communities, businesses, education, entertainment, etc. And has also enabled us to innovate by allowing us to have vision, experimenting on hypotheses, etc. 
Let's delve deeper into the way the liabilities are assessed against businesses because, as you mentioned, Seth, it's a critical difference among the different types of businesses. Each kind is subject to different and very specific rules as to whether or not liability can be assessed against the investors in the organization. In fact, the most important distinction in the modern corporation is the separation of the fictional business entity from its shareholders. And with limited exceptions, the legal responsibilities and liabilities of these two entities are kept separate. The same conceptual framework keeping a creditor from pursuing, say, the parent of an adult for their offspring's debts also forbids those creditors from pursuing the investors in a corporation. Both the parent and the investors, despite their obvious connection to the defaulting person or entity, are considered as separate and distinct, and therefore independent, entities under the law. And both these shields are, of course, just choices we make. They seem intuitively right to us because they've largely worked so far as they help us achieve the things we want to do. But you can see the ad hoc nature of the choice when you remember how we still have to remind ourselves that we are not our brother's keeper, or guarantor for that matter. So tell me more why you think this is important then. The shield is important, Seth, because it lets us work around a flaw in human psychology. As we discussed in a number of previous podcasts, humans are not risk neutral. What that means is most people would take a guaranteed 50 cents versus a 60% chance of earning a dollar, even though mathematically they'd be better off taking the chance. And since nothing can be gained without making an investment and taking risk, as we discussed in a few previous podcasts, risk aversion causes opportunities to get missed that everyone after the fact would agree should have been pursued. By limiting liability, we reduce the risk to investors of joining a venture, which makes creating ventures to develop valuable new products and services much more likely to occur, providing a significant net overall benefit to the community. And in addition to creating this liability shield, corporate personhood allows the corporation to enjoy at least some of the legal rights and responsibilities enjoyed by natural people, you know, ones you mentioned earlier. So in general, having a corporate structure with at least some rights and protections for its owners really is essential for capitalism. It makes the system a lot more efficient and effective. It's not an accident that global wealth and income exploded after the corporate shield was institutionalized in the 19th century. But we also need to keep in mind that opening a business is not in and of itself a quote-unquote right. We've just created a legal framework to give individuals the privilege of opening a business provided they follow certain laws and regulations. This is an important point as we'll kind of later discuss obligations that businesses have to the communities in which they operate. Seth, let's talk some more about how the corporation as a person has evolved in the United States. There's always been some recognition of corporate personhood as it applies to certain individual rights, but those have tended to expand over time. And I think the history largely started with one of my favorite Supreme Court cases of all time because it involved my alma mater. There was the 1819 Dartmouth College versus Woodward case. Uh, people know that case mostly because of the way it dealt with the contract clause of the Constitution. But in so doing, the Supreme Court acknowledged that corporations were entitled to at least some of the protections of the Constitution. Well, if that was one of your most favorite Supreme Court decisions, I'd have to say that the 2010 Citizens United ruling, which upheld a corporation's right to make unlimited political expenditures under the First Amendment, was one of my least favorite Supreme Court decisions. <laughs> they effectively said that corporations have a First Amendment right, just like a person, and that money equals speech. And they followed that up four years later with probably one of my least favorite Supreme Court decisions, which was the 2014 Burwell versus Hobby Lobby stores. In that particular case, the court exempted Hobby Lobby from some provisions of the Affordable Care Act because it put a burden on the owner's free exercise of religious beliefs. 
What's interesting is, on the other hand, the courts have also consistently denied some rights to corporations, such as the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and certain individual privacy rights. So that raises a natural question about expanding the fiction of corporate personhood. I mean, how far do we take it? Well, Seth, I've sensed in our discussions uh, that neither of us thinks all of this evolution has been desirable or good for the community. I mean, Citizens United strikes both of us as being fundamentally flawed. I'm not what's called an originalist when it comes to the Constitution. As Justice Breyer said, you can't avoid interpreting the Constitution in deciding constitutional issues. It's merely a question of how you interpret it. That said, it's really hard to imagine that the framers thought that rights like the First Amendment were meant for anything other than natural living beings. That's right. I mean, heck, they didn't even allow those rights to be applied to all natural people, just white men. And with reference to the Hobby Lobby case, I think that strikes us both as being wrong because it's internally inconsistent. The ruling allows Hobby Lobby to use the corporate veil to limit the liability of its owners, but it allows it to pierce the veil in the other direction in order to equate the owner's expression of their individual free speech rights as an expression of the company's. Well, you know what, Seth? I think we need to put you on the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, that'll work. <laughs> but in thinking about how far we should expand corporate personhood, we need to keep in mind that allowing corporations to exercise unfettered self-interest grants them the ability to change the legal system through political means. Which in turn, of course, only may further expand their rights. <laughs> Which may or may not be good from the point of view of the real people making up the community. Mark, it seems to me that what we're exploring here are the limits on storytelling when it's used as the basis for creating laws. I mean, the concept of a quote-unquote person clearly has its roots in objective reality. I mean, we can see and interact with each other after all. <laughs> That's right. But while the person under law derives from the person in reality, the legal construct of a business being a construct and not something existing independently as a standalone entity can actually be whatever we want it to be. It's kind of like what Humpty Dumpty said in Alice in Wonderland. A word means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. And I guess once you start looking for them, you'll notice the law contains a number of legal fictions, right? Examples of what we would call observational reality doesn't map all that well to the law. And they're not all as broadly useful as the corporate form. The one that always immediately springs to mind for me, Seth, is slavery. Slavery was institutionalized in law based on denying the humanity of people with darker skin that interfered with businesses trying to grow valuable crops. That particular fiction was a flat-out horror story. And women were not treated as full persons either or for many years, and certainly until they won the right to vote, and in many cases for many years after that. And children still aren't up until the age of majority, nor is it that they are simply under parental control, as many student journalists have found out when they write something their school's administration doesn't want to see in print. Yeah, I always found it interesting that we just sort of pick by law at different ages that kids could do things, right? Whether it's drive or get married or vote or be in the military, those are just choices we make. They're effectively legal fictions of when someone is eligible to do something. And even the notion of citizenship itself is just a creation of politics. And, and obviously in our law, it's not a natural human characteristic, right, to be a citizen of one country versus another. Although we obviously need legal fictions, the approach can be taken too far, which we are prone to do because we have to remember humans are great storytellers who really genuinely enjoy fiction. We embrace it not only for the entertainment it provides, but as we mentioned earlier, so that we can try out new ideas in our heads. You know, at times, though, it seems like our storytelling ability gets in the way and trips us up by forcing us to debate these issues within the fictional world we've created rather than the real world we live in. 
<laughs> Seth, one of my favorite insights that I came to in life is the idea that we don't, any of us, actually live in the real world. Instead, we live in a model of the real world, in a story that we create for ourselves based on the real world, which we then turn around and treat as being real, at least until reality rears up and bites us in the butt. But we do have to draw the line somewhere, right? How do we maintain a kind of fair balance between real people and effectively fictional people? I think it starts by remembering that we embrace the fiction of corporate personhood to gain community benefits and, of course, to serve our individual self-interests along the way. Sure. I mean, the U.S. has always looked at the corporation as an economic agent, right, having some rights that people have, like you talked about before, those related to property, contracts, etc. But we also have to recognize that's not the same as being a person. And we need to remember to ask whether the benefit of giving them additional rights is worth the cost that doing so may impose on the community. And we also need to remember that while our Constitution guarantees individual rights, it does say we the people after all, but it's, it's based on an important implicit contractual provision. That's a very important point, Seth. There are responsibilities to being a member of a community as well as consequences when a community member violates rights or laws. Okay, then let's talk about corporations in this context. These fictional people don't have and can't have, by definition, many things that are uniquely human. Corporations can't love they can't have religion. They can't have emotions. They don't have morals, things like that. <laughs> well, you know, that last one raises a really interesting question, Seth. It's clear that the people who run a corporation can certainly be morally bankrupt. But can the corporation itself be morally bankrupt? And corporations can't have the accountability that real people have, like you mentioned. Humans can be punished by being sent to prison. It's really hard to imprison a virtual person. So in practice, the punishment of corporations, which although legally can in some cases be considered criminal, it's really more akin to civil type punishments, things like fines, restraint on actions, etc. There are limited exceptions where individuals inside a company can be held personally criminally liable. I mean, for example, one that I'm personally familiar with is not from having gone to jail, but having worked at a pharmaceutical company. Companies that develop and manufacture human pharmaceuticals must have somebody designated as a responsible officer. That's an officer of the corporation who can be thrown in jail if the corporation is found to have committed certain types of criminal acts. Yeah, I wonder if that's related to Purdue Pharma, because I know the Sackler family pushed for amnesty from criminal prosecution as part of their financial settlement obligation dealing with the opioid crisis. I bet it probably was. You know, Seth, I think that we're touching on a very interesting problem here with extending the fiction surrounding corporations. If a corporation has all the rights of a real person, we have effectively put them in practice above the law because the quid pro quos the law is based on to encourage or enforce proper behavior among members of the community can't really be implemented. It makes sense. So therefore, it should be pretty obvious that corporations shouldn't have many of the rights, let alone all of the rights that we grant to real people. For example, people have freedom of political expression, but people can be thrown in jail for yelling fire in a crowded movie house. There's no equivalent check on a corporation's similar right. And although corporations are creations of people to, by definition, serve this other role, you know, we somehow ascribe values to these companies, like we effectively anthropomorphize them. Seth, I think our listeners need to know that we aren't arguing businesses shouldn't be allowed to engage in political lobbying. They need to be able to do that to fully represent their commercial interests. But there is a substantive difference, right, between lobbying for policies directly related to the core of one's business versus using the business's power to impose or express essentially personal views. 
As we noted earlier, having a corporation promote what amounts to the views of its leadership essentially pierces the corporate veil. And that's what we found disturbing about the Hobby Lobby case. It authorized the power of the corporation to express personal beliefs. The problem is that many people want the benefits of being part of a community, including the ability to create and grow a business, without the limitations that must exist within the community to promote and ensure everyone's liberty. In a previous podcast, uh, we talked about that clerk in Kentucky who refused to process same-sex marriage licenses, saying it violated her religious beliefs. But the problem with her argument was that she was not the one giving the license. The county was. She was merely an employee of the county acting on its behalf. And the county has no religious point of view. It just must follow the law. She is welcome not to take a job inconsistent with her point of view, but having taken the job, she must act on behalf of her employer or quit in favor of someone else who will. Right. And that happens all the time in business. I mean, it's common practice in ad agencies, for example, to allow employees to opt out of working with certain clients because they may be uncomfortable or have religious or moral objections to working for, let's say, you know, a tobacco company or liquor company or something like that. That makes perfect sense to me. Allowing individuals to negotiate with their employer to be the most productive while allowing the organization to serve its mission is something employers and employees do all the time. You see the same thing, I think, in the medical profession. An individual doctor can negotiate with his or her employer not to perform certain procedures as long as the institution is still able to perform them. But I know doctors do things at times that may conflict with a personal, moral, or religious belief because they are acting in a professional capacity, not a personal capacity. You know, it's funny, Mark, that reminds me of something I've always been puzzled about. I don't get the concept of religious hospitals. Just because they're started by, you know, or run by religious groups, how can the hospital have a religion? And the corollary of that is, for example, refuse to do certain procedures. Yeah, that confuses me too, Seth. The ability to operate as a hospital is something granted by the community. It's unclear how that could be interpreted as an inherent right or feature of being a religion, even if it's sponsored or funded by a religious organization. Although I have to admit, what defines a religion in law is not very well defined, (laughs) as adherents of the flying spaghetti monster know very well. (laughs) That's right. Mark, I hope a lot of people will agree with us about the separation of the employee and the individual versus the business. But let's talk about small businesses, right? What about that individual baker who refused to create a cake for a same-sex couple? Is that a little more of a gray area because the individual, maybe both the employer and the employee? I don't think it's as much of a gray area, Seth, as many people think it is, although I have to admit that the Supreme Court recently has been, in my opinion, muddying the waters. As we said earlier, running a business isn't a right. It's a contract entered into with the community. And part of that contract is the obligation to follow the law, including serving customers in a non-discriminatory way. And I think the problem here is that the act of anthropomorphizing a business in many ways enables the owners or managers of that business to impose their personal morals or religious beliefs upon the community. And we have to keep in mind that companies were designed as commercial vessels, not organizing mechanisms for promoting political, moral, or religious beliefs. Seth, that's a great point and one which serves as a good transition to offering our listeners some thoughts and ideas on how to make things work better for the community as a whole when it comes to corporations. Unfortunately, Mark, I don't think it's a very long list because this is a tough problem to untangle. It's a powerful and useful fiction. And once you accept it, you have to tread carefully lest you inadvertently enable other fictions, you know, like slavery that we really don't want. Here's a seemingly oddball idea which some people are beginning to embrace. Use the right to religious freedom to fight attempts to constrain your other rights. Yeah, it's funny. I just read about a synagogue in Florida suing to overturn Florida's recent curb on the right to an abortion, arguing the law would penalize its congregants and is at odds with Jewish law and understanding regarding abortion. 
Finally, a positive Florida man story. <laughs> if, but if we're going to make the freedom to impose your religious beliefs on others acceptable, whether it's not to serve gay customers, for example, you know, then that opens the door to using the same logic to stop the government from doing many other things. And maybe we should think about starting our own religions that merely happen to require us to be exempt from laws we don't like. If nothing else, that might force the fundamentalists in our judiciary to rethink just how far they want to elevate the right to religious freedom above <laughs> other rights. Um, I'm not very hopeful, but there is another simple thing our listeners can do. And I'll say something that, Mark, you tell me all the time to do, which is always keep in mind a person's motivation when you hear them pitch what appears to be a good idea. And in the case of businesses, ask whether the idea represents the company's interests or just the interest of an individual running the business. But from a bigger picture sense, right, our listeners should always keep in mind that businesses have obligations to their community, which they accept in exchange for the privilege of being allowed to operate. And a willingness to better enforce those contractual obligations when the privilege is granted to operate would certainly help the situation. But beyond that, Mark, while corporations need some rights to operate and provide the benefits we enjoy from having them, policymakers need to remember they're fundamentally vehicles for commerce, not the expression of individual views. And, by definition, they can never have the same responsibilities or accountabilities as real individuals have. And as always, the rights of one person, whether real or fictional, can all too easily infringe on someone else's rights, particularly when the infringing person is economically powerful. Another idea, Seth, is one we keep coming back to again and again in these podcasts. We all need to work to elect people committed to leveling the playing field rather than just rewarding those who already have power and want more of it. Yeah, I mean, for many years, I've been a big fan of campaign finance reform and related to what we're talking about today, I wouldn't mind to see some constitutional amendment proposals around corporate personhood and money equaling speech. So this isn't a debate anymore. I think that's a really great idea, Seth, although constitutional changes are admittedly very hard to do. But I think, Seth, since we're apparently allowing companies to have points of view, shouldn't consumers take those points of view into account in their purchase decisions? I mean, this is a tough one, Mark, and one that I've struggled with a lot. And we touched on this a bit in our episode about cancel culture, because I think that in an ideal world, we wouldn't judge a corporation on its point of view because it shouldn't have any outside of its direct commercial interests, at least. But however, since we're now in a world where we've decided that money is speech and corporations can act like people, they de facto have this point of view. So I'm not sure what we do about it. Well, I think what we do about it is that if they have those rights, which I agree with you, they probably shouldn't have, that means it's legitimate for us, the customers, to respond to those views. We can do that by choosing not to do business with corporations that pierce the corporate veil to promote individual beliefs. Yeah, in practice, that's one of the few things we can actually do. Seth, this was definitely a more targeted discussion than some of our previous topics, but absolutely worth having. Yes, ever since Mitt Romney famously made that quote, I thought there's really been a dearth of thoughtful discussions about corporate personhood. I have a funny feeling this podcast is going to get referenced in a lot of our future discussions. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, well, thank you, Mark, and thanks to our listeners. Uh, signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Believing that you, our listener, is indeed a non-fictional person. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, 
please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.